This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Mama told me, son, go and play in the yard. Papa said, go and play, you gotta break your stomach, go and scream real hard. Welcome to it, Inside the Yard, a couple of Orioles broadcasters talking everything Orioles. Always off to a good start after the All-Star break as we record this on a Tuesday morning. They have one of their best games of the year, beating the Yankees, now 10-6 and six in the second half of the year. But Jeff, really fired up for this weekend. We have the Orioles annual Hall of Fame induction weekend going in, former Orioles center fielder Mike Devereaux, MVO, 1992, former Orioles All-Star and Gold Glove winner, J.J. Hardy, a part of three Orioles playoff teams. Mo Gabba will go in posthumously, and that will be emotional, and he will be recognized in the Orioles Hall of Fame forever. And also one of the all-time great voices of baseball, and we were fortunate enough to have him in Baltimore for a long, long time on multiple runs. And that's the great Joe Angel, who will join us coming up here on this podcast. Yeah, Brett, I'm so excited to spend some time with Joe I remember when I was in the minor leagues, I would come out to Orioles games and I would put demos together just to, you know, practice calling games in the major leagues and just what a major league broadcast was like. And just kind of just trying to put a tape together of somebody could listen to of me calling a game of, of major league players. And, and I remember Joe was telling me when he got his first job calling big league games, which I'm, I'm hopeful we're going to be able to talk to him about uh, just how he went about it. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, I did the same exact thing when I was starting out too. So um, I'm real looking forward to this conversation. All the catchphrases that he has and all the sayings that he has, I'd love to hear where some of them came from, but he was entertaining. I love listening to him and Fred. You and I got to catch up with Fred earlier on in the year, and uh, it's going to be great to talk to Joe and spend some time with him uh, because he's one of the best, and I look forward to the day when he's a, a Ford Frick winner and going into the Hall of Fame. It's long overdue for that, but uh, we've been very fortunate in Baltimore, both on the baseball side and just broadcasting in general. We've had some just wonderful broadcasters. And Joe is one of the all-time great play-by-play voices on the backdrop and on the call for so many of the biggest moments in Orioles history. The 89 season, of course, the 1992 inaugural season at Camden Yards, the great Buck Showalter era, uh, maybe capped off with a Delman Young double. And of course, the uh, getting back to the playoffs and winning that wild card game. And Joe just had an amazing sense of the moment. I think that's his gift along with his voice and incredible humor. I mean, he is a funny, funny guy. I think more than any other sport, Jeff, our game and the play-by-play aspect of it, that personality is so important uh, compared to, you know, the, the pace of football and the pace of basketball and the pace of hockey and other sports. I mean, Joe is a friend. Even if you don't know him, he he becomes a friend because you just were entertained by him for six months a year, every year. So it's really a pleasure to have him on this podcast today, and we congratulate him going into the Orioles Hall of Fame. But let's get to it. Joe Angel.
all the best Orioles ticket deals in one place, including single-game tickets, ticket packs, special offers, and more. We've got you covered at the Orioles Ticket Marketplace. This is your place to score exclusive deals, so check back often for the latest opportunities. Don't wait to purchase last minute at the box office. Ticket prices are the same at Orioles.com slash tickets to purchase. Well, I'll be darned, Jeff Arnold. With us right now is the longtime voice of the Baltimore Orioles, Mr. Joe Angel, who will go into the Orioles Hall of Fame this weekend, and we can't wait to see him in town. But, Joe, thank you so much for coming on with us, and uh, congratulations on a great honor coming up this weekend. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you so much. It is a, a great honor. I'm extremely proud of what's about to happen this weekend, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not anything I thought would ever happen, but here it is, and I, and I can't wait to, to get to Baltimore. Joe, I was going to ask you the story of just how you got started calling big league games. I remember that I would pop in your booth when I was doing minor league games and I was doing tapes of games. And, and you told me that that your first gig doing this, you would I think you had like a cassette recorder and you would go into an empty booth someplace and broadcast some innings. And then I think you gave them the program director and they would listen to them. And that's kind of how you got started calling big league baseball. But take us through that story of how you. You got your uh, entree into calling Major League Baseball. Yeah, that's uh, you got a good memory. I've uh, it's an interesting story because it's very unusual uh, the way I got started. I uh, I never I never had to broadcast a game in the minor leagues or at the collegiate level or at uh, any level other than the major leagues. And it's, it's kind of interesting the way it got started because I was working in the San Francisco market. I was doing radio and television, and uh, you know, as a youngster, I can remember growing up in Chicago and uh, grabbing uh, a hairbrush as a youngster. And I was like 10, 11, 12 years old and uh, pretending that the the hairbrush was a microphone. And uh, I was a diehard fan of the Chicago Cubs. And in those days, uh, WGN television, that was this first super station. They used to televise every game and I would turn the volume down and I would do play by play. So I would drive the family crazy doing that, but it was something, you know, that I loved doing and uh, it gave me a lot of joy. And uh, so that was a, an early indication that, that that might be what I wind up doing, you know, when I grew up. And uh, that's exactly what happened. But it's interesting because I was working in San Francisco doing radio and television and uh, out of the blue came a phone call from the program director at KSFO Radio, which was then the flagship station of the San Francisco Giants. And they were looking to fill a position as the uh, full-time sports director and, as he explained to me on the telephone at the time, not only to become the sports director of the radio station, but also occasionally fill in on the San Francisco Giants play-by-play team. And as soon as he said that, I immediately became very interested. And so I'm sure I'd love to, I'd love to talk to you about the position. And they had to fill the thing real quickly. So it was, a, you know, an overnight kind of a thing. And he, then he asked me a question. He said, Joe, have you ever done baseball before? Now, if he had asked it in a different way, I would have had to give a different answer. If he had, if he had asked me, have I ever broadcast a baseball game before, I would have had to say no. But he, the way he phrased the question was, have you ever done baseball before? And I immediately said, well, yeah, I've done a lot of baseball before because I used to go to the Candlestick Park and the Oakland Coliseum with a tape recorder and a couple of microphones, and I would practice play-by-play for, you know, for hours, you know, game after game. I would sit in the upper deck, or I would find an empty booth somewhere, and I would practice, uh, because that's basically what I wanted to eventually do. And I was only about 26, 27 years old at the time. So 
So he said, okay, great. You've done baseball before. Do you have a tape? I said, uh, uh, yeah, I've got, I've got a tape. And he said, well, can you bring it in tomorrow morning? We have to make a decision on this as quickly as possible. I said, sure, I'll bring it in tomorrow morning. Well, that night, the Cleveland Indians were playing the Oakland Athletics in a twin-night doubleheader. So I took my tape recorder, and I took a couple of microphones, and I sat in one empty booth, and I did about and I did all my game prep and all that stuff. And I did about 13 or 14 innings of play-by-play into this tape recorder. And that was a long night to work. And then after that, I went back to the radio station I was working at and edited it to what I felt was my best three innings, right? And um, which, uh, you guys know it's very hard to do because you're your own worst critic. You know, you hate yourself when you, you listen to your voice on tape and what you said and what you did. And the first thing you say is, oh, I mean, I wish I'd said this. and I wish I'd said it like this. And I wish I hadn't said that. And so you're your own worst critic. It took me a long time to cut it down to my three best innings. And I took it in the next day. They uh, listened to it, and they got back to me almost immediately later that same day and said, you know what, we heard the tape. We think it sounds great. We think it's plenty good enough. You're only going to be filling in occasionally anyway. We'd like to offer you the job. And I said, great, I'll take it. And this is literally two weeks later. I'm in an airplane flying to Atlanta to make my major league broadcasting debut, and my partner that day was none other than Al Michaels. Mm. who was then the chief, the lead broadcaster for the San Francisco Giants on KSFO. So I guess, you know, the moral of the story is, um, and it's really, it's really uh, evidence of what a great country this is, a land of opportunity, you know, because I was born in Colombia, in Bogota, Colombia, South America. My parents immigrated to the U.S. when I was seven years old. And you talk about a land of opportunity, and I never spoke a word of English until I was about 10 years old. And so there I was for 42 years broadcasting Major League Baseball in English. So it's a, it's a great land of opportunity. It's just a matter of being ready when opportunity knocks and being prepared and taking advantage of it. And uh, I kind of think that's what happened. So it's a long, involved story, but that's how I got started. Well, you certainly have mastered the English language, Joe. And... Uh, you have so many great, I don't want to call them catchphrases because they're more than that. They were synonymous with you in the broadcast, whether it was, of course, in the wind column, hasta la vista pelota, uh, wave that baby, bye-bye. Did, did you start with those or did you, did you incorporate them along the way? No, I, you know, they evolved. Uh, I mean, there were reasons why, uh, you know, why I wound up saying those things and, and they work, you know, and they have to come natural. I don't think that's stuff you can manufacture or force on people. I think they do have to be kind of natural. The uh, In the win column thing, you know, it started with the Orioles uh, in 1988 because my debut, my introduction to Oriole baseball was that 1988 team that <laughs> began the season 0-21, which, you know, as you guys know, uh, obliterated the previous record for, you know, beginning of the season futility. I think the record was like... 0 and 12 or 0 and 14, and they and they ran it to 0 and 21. So uh, it was one of those situations where when they finally won a ball game, we were elated at the result. They finally won a game. They got all the media off their backs. Uh, you know, finally able to win a ball game after 22 tries. And I remember listening to a tape after that game where I was doing a recap of what had happened in the game, and I ended it by saying, "And the Orioles are finally." 
in the win column, just like that, you know, because I was I was thrilled that, uh, you know, we'd finally broadcast a winning game. And I happened to listen to the recording of it, and I thought it sounded, I thought it sounded really good. And I said, you know what, I, I, maybe I'll just incorporate that into my broadcast. But when they win a game, they say, hey, the Orioles today in the win column. And so that, that's how that was born, and it, it worked out pretty well. Uh, that's, uh, I took it with me to Florida when I did radio and television with the Florida Marlins, and I, yeah, I, I took it with me uh, every place after that. And with, when I eventually made my way back to Baltimore, so uh, it worked out nicely. You know, the uh, Hasta la Vista Pelota, you know, because uh, Spanish was my first language, and I thought it would be fun to incorporate something like that. And I only did it when a Latin player hit a home run. Uh, you know, I thought I thought it made sense. I thought it was apropos, and so when a Latin player hit a home run, I would incorporate hasta la vista pelota. You know, uh, that's how that started. And the wave it bye bye thing, uh, that started. Um, oh yeah, I almost forgot. I was broadcasting a game and uh, I was describing a home run, and I happened to look at a television monitor, and I saw fans. After the home run was hit, I saw a fan waving to the baseball as if it was waving bye-bye. And so, yeah, there's been some great catchphrases like Russ Hodges was bye-bye uh, baby. And Lon Simmons, another Hall of Fame broadcaster in San Francisco, his thing was tell it goodbye. And I saw this fan waving at the baseball. He was waving it bye-bye. I said, wow, there's, that, there's, there's a home run call. Wave that, wave it, bye-bye. Wave that baby, bye-bye. So it's similar to what other broadcasters have done, but it was my own little take on it, and uh, it came natural, and uh, it worked out great. Joe, your style is certainly your own, and you mentioned work with Al Michaels at the very start, but who are some other broadcasting influences for you when you were growing up and then maybe uh, once you reached the major leagues? You know, it's funny. When I grew up, I grew up in Chicago. My, as I mentioned, my parents immigrated to the U.S. when I was seven years old, and I spoke no English till I was 10, but I was lucky because... Growing up in Chicago, I became a big baseball fan, a fan of the Chicago Cubs. In those days, it was uh, Jack Brickhouse and Lou Boudreau. They were the broadcasters. So those are the people I listened to originally, and those are the people I tried to emulate. But it wasn't until I got to San Francisco and I got a chance to work with uh, Lon Simmons, who was one of the all-time great broadcasters, a local guy. People nationally aren't aware of who he is, but he is in uh, Cooperstown in the Hall of Fame. And uh, he was a tremendous influence on me, not only because I got a chance to work with him, but because uh, he taught me a heck of a lot. He's a, he had a great voice, great delivery, great sense of humor. I loved the way he described the game. He was low-key to a certain extent, but, boy, his, his voice would crack when something exciting happened. And so that, you know, that uh, communicated the excitement over the airwaves. And so he was, he was just a, a fantastic human being and just a great person to work with and a, and a great role model. And then eventually, as you guys know, I worked with John Miller in Baltimore. And eventually later I got to work with John Miller in San Francisco as well. So there's another guy who was a tremendous influence on me. His passion for the, the profession, his passion for the game, uh, his delivery, his sense of humor, all of those things, you know, have a – have an effect on you know, people that you work with, and they certainly affected me. So I, I think those are the guys that really uh, affected me as, as I progressed in the business. And uh, having a chance to work with these people was just uh, you know a tremendous asset for me. So I think I think those are the uh, those are the two guys. Well, it's interesting, Joe, that there's no way that 
hearing you call as many games as I have and working near you for a long time, that your style couldn't seep into my mind doing play-by-play. Of course, nowhere it could be on your level. But I found myself at different points in my life, I could be at a bar and someone walks in and I say, my goodness, just because you're so much in the backdrop of my brain for all these years. And obviously, we're very blessed in Baltimore growing up and hearing uh, Chuck at the end of his career and John and, of course, you. Uh, we were very fortunate here, but you are the guys who planted the seeds in my mind uh, to go this route in my life and, and my career. And even still, Jeff and I referenced this yesterday, calling a game. The Orioles starting pitcher had a lead, which was rare for this starting pitcher. And we always say, what does Joe Angel say? How do you live with prosperity? Can he keep the lead? Will he fold with it? And that still makes so much sense. It's such a good analogy. Well, it's it's great to hear because you know, basically what you're saying is you know it, it's it's great to be a broadcaster of a generation, and it was your generation, and I'm uh, I'm honored by that by what you just said. I'm uh, I'm humbled by it because you know when you get into broadcasting, I don't think you have those goals in mind. You just want to get the job and you want to do the best job possible, and you want to influence people and you want to entertain, but you don't think of yourself as a, a generational guy. Or, uh, you know, you don't think of uh, young people listening and you're trying to affect them. But that's right. I think that's what happens naturally. So uh, it, it, it's great to hear. And it's a great compliment. And uh, I appreciate that. Joe, you mentioned sense of humor. And when I would listen to you, that was one of the biggest things that, that would stand out for me. How important is it when you're doing baseball, especially on the radio, to be able to use a sense of humor every day as a way to draw people in and to kind of get them involved in the broadcast? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, a sense of humor, it's something that uh, it's, it's natural. I think if you have it, you have it. And if you don't, it's, it's not a real good idea to try to force something like that on the air. I think what you do over time, uh, you know, eventually becomes natural. And if you try to fake it, I think it's obvious to the listener. So I think it has to be a natural thing and not something you try to force. Uh, it, it just uh, and I think it really comes in handy because. Yeah, broadcasting Major League Baseball, and one of the reasons, I, something that I really wanted to do, I think it's the most challenging position because I think if you, if you broadcast uh, NBA basketball or college basketball, I think the game carries the broadcast because there's always something happening. And if you have the ability to speak and describe and uh, you get the English language, I, I think the, the game carries the broadcast. I think it's the same thing with football although to a lesser extent than basketball. Uh, football, you do the play-by-play, and everything's happening at once. And then as soon as the play ends, you have your analyst that you work with, and it's his job to explain what just happened, why it happened, what might happen on the next play. And so the game kind of carries the broadcast. Uh, the baseball is the only is the only position where I think the broadcaster carries the game because there's so much dead time in baseball. There's so much time to fill in and uh, you have to find a way to fill it and do it in a way that's entertaining. And if you happen to have a, a sense of humor and you don't try to force it and you let it happen naturally, I think it comes in very handy. So uh, I think it's the most challenging job, which, uh, you know, it's a, that's why it's a full-time job. You know, football is one game a week and I, I broadcast Stanford football when Bill Walsh was the head coach there, John Elway was the quarterback, and they had a phenomenal scat back in Darren Nelson and a great wide receiver in Kenny Margram. They went to a couple of bowl games in those years. And uh, those, those were great memories. But to me, you had six days to prepare for one game. Where in baseball, 
you got a game every day, and every game is a continuation of what happened the day before, but it's different in many ways. So uh, it, it, it was more fluid. You got to do it every day. You didn't sit around waiting for six days to get the next game underway. So that's why I think it was the most challenging and I think, therefore, the most uh, rewarding. Joe, I think one of your many gifts was your ability to pull back at a big moment. I think we hear a lot of young broadcasters and everything's at the highest octane all the time, especially when it's a perceived big moment. I think about when the Orioles finally won a playoff game, they beat the Rangers in that wildcard game in 2012. And that would have been such an opportunity for this rah-rah call. And you actually scaled it back to such a point, which I think captured this remarkable season and moment. Is that is something you think about in real time? Or is that just a natural gift to sense the moment? Well, I think it's something I learned, you know, from other broadcasters. I think that's something that, that you should incorporate. You know, when you're doing radio in particular, and, and you guys, you guys know this. You guys have broadcast, you know, uh, a lot of experience in the business. And when you're when you were doing radio, to me, it's all about the crowd. And I think people listening on the radio, if they hear the crowd, it kind of puts them into the crowd as they sit in their car radio in the backyard doing a barbecue or something, if you let the crowd establish itself and let, let the listeners hear the crowd, I think that's the most important thing. And I think we, yeah, I didn't really, uh, I had that one game we broadcast the no, the no fans game. And little did we know that eventually the last couple of years, you know, for, for a full season, it was nothing but no fans games. I mean, never did I thought that that would happen. And I, I think that took a lot away from the broadcast because at a great moment, like you indicated, it's great to be able to just shut up and let the crowd, after you describe what happened and let the people know what happened, it's a great idea to just shut up and let the crowd carry the broadcast for a while and let the listener, you know, interject himself mentally into, into the broadcast. Uh, I think it's very important. If you don't hear the crowd, then, then, you know, why are you there? It's like if you're doing a broadcast and you don't give the score every once in a while, as often as you can, even you, you may think it's repetitive. If you don't give the score and let people know what the score is, then the, the, the person listening has no idea what's going on. So you have to let them know what's happening by, and all you can do that by just giving them the score of the game. They, it, it puts them immediately into the game and into the broadcast, uh, you know, it determines whether or not they want to continue listening. You know, if it's 14 to one, they may not want to do that, you know? So, uh, so I think you have to let them know. And I think the crowd does that to a certain extent. So you have to leave, you have to allow the crowd to speak. Joe, do you have a favorite moment that you get to call when you're with the Orioles does one maybe stand out above the rest wow that's that's a hard question I don't uh, I don't think so um, I mean there were a lot of bad moments there were, there were a lot of great moments uh, uh, the Delman Young <laughs> the Delman Young pinch hit uh, to me was one of the great moments because you know it brought the Orioles all the way back that to what enabled Buck Joe Walter and that team to uh, you know to change the culture in Baltimore what what had been a losing culture, I think that brought them all the way back. I think when Robert Andino got that big hit that on the final day of the season that eliminated uh, the Boston Red Sox, to me, that was a great moment because the Boston Red Sox were the team that I liked the least. I don't want to use the word hate, 
but it was the team that I liked the least. And uh, so that to me was a great moment. You know, every opening day was uh, was a, a fantastic memory. And there were there were some sad moments too. But uh, that's hard to. It's I'd, I'd have to sit down and really uh, think about all the great moments. I, I'll tell you one thing. I, I don't think I don't think any other broadcaster accomplished what I did in Baltimore. And I say it very humbly because my debut with the Orioles was 1988, and that was the 0-21 team. And eventually, I would leave Baltimore on two occasions. I left to do the Yankees in, uh, it was 1991, the year that George Steinbrenner was suspended by Major League Baseball for making illegal campaign contributions. So I, I went. I left Baltimore to do the Yankees for one year. I signed a, a three-year contract. I decided that I really wasn't happy in New York, and I was able to leave, and I was able to come back to Baltimore. So I left after the 88, and I left after 91, and I came back. Uh, so it's not very often that you see a, a major league broadcaster leave a market I mean, not not once and be able to come back, but leave it twice and be able to come back on each occasion. So the Orioles kept taking me back, and so I think it became the, the place that were, where I was supposed to be. And it worked out fantastic, as evidenced, I think, by what's about to happen this weekend. Joe, how is retirement treating you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It's, uh, I think I left at the right time especially with COVID and what the broadcasters have had to have had to go through and the players and the fans the last couple of years, I didn't have to go through that. I was able to leave and, uh, and I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. So I think the timing was pretty good. Retirement, I, I think has been great. I think uh, my golf game's gotten better. The days do tend to blend into each other. Uh, in fact, the only, the only reason I know it's a Monday is because, you know, the club is closed on Mondays and I'm not able to play on Monday. So, oh, yeah, it's closed. It must be Monday. Other than that, it all kind of blends in, but I can travel. I can I can make plans uh, now that now that COVID is uh, allowing us to do it to a certain extent. You know, I can go to Denver. I can go to Los see my family. And, uh, and I, 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 the last several years doing baseball, my uh, I wasn't really fond of traveling. I wasn't fond of airplanes and buses and hotels anymore not like it was when i was younger so i think all those factors if you put them all together i think retirement has actually treated me pretty well and i'm i'm happy in retirement for the golfers out there <laughs> peter schmuck our buddy told us that you might have been the best bunker player that he's ever seen in his life so give us all a tip or two for when we get stuck in the bunker how to make a good shot out of it Okay, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> because I was playing golf with Peter quite a few years ago, and uh, he happened to be standing in the wrong spot behind the pin as I was coming out of the bunker. And I hit a terrible bunker shot. I sculled it out of the bunker and uh, almost wound up hitting three balls with that shot. And and he was the, <laughs> he was the, the unintended victim and... Uh, turned about three different shades of color as that ball was flying towards him. But it became, a, when the ball missed him, it became a, a very funny moment, a, a very comical moment. But it's a moment that I'm sure he'll never forget. And as you can tell, I've never forgotten either. I mean, no, occasionally I'll hit good bunker shots, but that was not a good one. But it, it made a memory, and uh, it's fun to talk about. Well, Joe, it really was an incredible pleasure to speak with you, and we can't wait to see you in Baltimore this weekend. And 
after this stop here, hopefully next stop Cooperstown. Wouldn't that be nice? No, thank you. From uh, that, that, that would be that would be really unexpected. But uh, thank you for your thoughts. I appreciate it, and I can't wait to get to Baltimore and to see all your beautiful faces again. The great Joe Angel. Birdland Experience, you know, game with the convenience and privacy of your very own suite. A variety of affordable single-game suites throughout the ballpark are available. Enjoy exclusive access to the game with climate-controlled interior seating, a private restroom, and comfortable outside seating. Visit Orioles.com slash suites for more information. All right, Jeff, Rock Kubako, MassInSports.com is with us right now. And, Rock, let's revisit the trade deadline for a moment and the lack of movement for the Orioles outside uh, Freddie Galvis and Sean Armstrong. Are you surprised looking back that even Paul Fry or Tanner Scott or Cole Solz or whomever else didn't get moved? Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised by that. I'm not surprised by the fact that there was very little activity. It just never occurred to me to, to include Sean Armstrong in all my <laughs> speculation. I Somehow I missed the AAA reliever. I was focused so much on the active roster. And Galvis, I thought, maybe had, because of the injury, removed himself as the chip. I don't know how much of a market there was. Maybe it was just the Phillies in a, in a sweet reunion. So a little bit surprised by that as well. I really thought it was going to be Paul Fry or Tanner Scott. And, of course, it takes two to tango. You have to have a match. You can't just be like, well, hey, we'd like to move one of these guys, and they're our best trade ship, so let's do it. So clearly there was not – and I did mention this. I'm sure you guys did as well. There wasn't a huge sense of urgency to make that trade because they're under team control like three more years. And, you know, you can go ahead and wait. You can revisit this in the offseason. You can revisit it next trade deadline or the one after that. You don't have to just take any offer. Clearly, there wasn't one good enough to go ahead and pull the trigger on. But I just assumed there would be. And then, of course, the, the fun debate was, would it be Fry or Scott? Because they bring different things to the table. And Fry seems to be certainly more, I guess, reliable, more, you know, less prone to the kind of things that are happening with Scott with the control lapses. But Scott's got that electric arm and that can and a higher ceiling and that can appeal to some teams who I'm sure are going to say, hey, we can fix this guy and make him more of a strike thrower and reduce the walks per nine innings. So I just was curious about which ones are going to be. It ends up being neither. And then Scott ends up on the IL and you really think, man, how sweet would it have been to get something back from at that time and then have him go in the IL and you've got a player. But again, you can go ahead and revisit that later. Maybe Scott gets on another role, finishes strong this season, and then the offseason, some club is willing to give up whatever the Orioles would be looking for. We gave this hypothetical rock, so I'm interested in your take on it. You know, Matt Harvey had those two good starts in the second half where he threw six scoreless innings, one against the Royals, one against the Nationals. And we were saying to ourselves, if he had thrown six and a third scoreless innings, the day before the trade deadline, it might have been pretty interesting what could have happened. Um, do you tend to think that, you know, if, if that start maybe had come the day before, how much more interest there would have been in Matt Harvey at the deadline? I think so. And I don't know if the over-under then has to be three in a row. But if he had done it three straight going to that, I think maybe there could have been a little bit more of a market. And in this case, I don't think it's, well, we can revisit this later. I mean, this guy was signed a one-year deal and he's going to be a free agent again. So uh, I think that would have made a big difference. I think maybe teams after only two were a little more hesitant. You do it three straight times, then you have to start wondering. Now, 
how much, I don't know what you could have gotten back for, but how much do you really need in that case when it is somebody that you can revisit? And instead of getting nothing, he just re-enters the market. So you, I think if you could have gotten even, hey, Dominican Summer League outfielder that you really like, or somebody in the low levels of a, a system, a class A pitcher like they got for Galvis, whatever, you absolutely have to do it. So I, there must have just been really nothing at that point. I do think, you know, theorizing, speculating, that three in a row like that would have had more people saying, okay, maybe even and not, you know, hey, he's our number one starter now. It may be even a depth type move like the Yankees made with uh, Andrew. Was it pronounced Haney? Haney. So Haney. Haney. Yes. Haney. Yes. And that heinous uh, outing that he had this debut. But, you know, something along those lines where a team might have said, look, we could go ahead and get him as an extra starter, plug him in, see if we kind of catch lightning in a bottle. But, Two, two straight was not enough, apparently. But three, I think you could have got something done. Rock, I don't want to look too much into the deadline, but... Well, me, let's do it anyway. Let's do it anyway. Suddenly, could it be viewed as a turning point in this whole process? Because they didn't dump salary, and it would have been easy to, on a number for a number of players, if they really just wanted to shed weight and salary and for a few players who are going to get raises in arbitration or are going to be arbitration eligible, it's going to be a significant increase. Yes, they can move them still in the offseason. But also, if you are purely playing for picks next year, you have a much better chance to pick one, two, three in 2022 if you got rid of Tanner Scott or Paul Fry or Cole Soul. So you're going to be a much worse team at that point. And now they are a better team with those players in-house and in the bullpen and on the roster. So by not just getting rid to getting rid of players, to me, that is a subtle moment in this process, maybe. I think so. I think part of it, again, goes back to value as well, where if you can revisit this in the offseason and say maybe there are more suitors, maybe someone is willing to offer us more for one of those guys, and that does include a Dylan Tate, it includes a Cole Sulcer, than they would have been you know, in July or whatever. Uh, maybe that's a point, too. That's like there wasn't a sense of urgency to do it now. We can revisit this. But also, yeah, because they value guys who are under control. And, you know, even if you're approaching your first arbitration year, you're still not making mega bucks. So I feel like they're still at least comfortable in that range. Also, I think there's some guys like a Santander, for example, that you don't want to sell low on. His value is down because he's missed so much time health-wise. He wasn't hitting. Now, all of a sudden, not to get your hopes up again, but Anthony Santander is starting to swing the bat well again. Maybe for once he can finish the season strong and finish the season and not be shut down in September. And if that happens, his value goes back up and then you go ahead and revisit this again in the off season where maybe more teams are like, all right, we're convinced we saw X number of, you know, a couple months in a row of Santander playing really well and being healthy. Maybe he's a guy for us and his value goes up. If you try and move him right now, whatever the market was for him, it's low. You're not going to get much in return and, and you're not pressed to sell low on him. So they could go ahead and revisit that, and then you're still saving money because he's gonna he's doing another raise. And then there's some guys you're not gonna move anyway. Mullins means they were never in consideration, and Mancini it would have taken a huge offer. And that's where maybe with Trey some money can be redirected because they are considering at least the possibility of extension talks, which we never thought we were gonna see in a rebuild. He's a special case. But getting back to your, to your point, I think there's a couple of things at work here. Guys that are under control that they think, hey, maybe moving forward, they help us. Or we can revisit this later or the value is too low and we definitely will revisit it later. 
Iraq, I was going to follow up on the Mancini thing. Uh, when Mike Elias was asked that question after the deadline passed, how did you interpret his answer when it was asked about, you know, the possibility of an extension for Trite? Yeah, I mean, and, and I've heard from other people when I've asked this question, it's more like for background. I, it's definitely clear that it's they're open to it, which for me is newsworthy in itself, even though I don't think they would ever publicly say absolutely not. But either being told off the record or reading between the lines, whatever, they definitely are at least open to considering the idea what that means, open to considering, which again, for a team in a rebuild that's been reducing payroll and funneling that money in other directions, I think that's significant that they would look at a player and say, okay, here's the guy, what's he, 4.7 million now, and he's going to be due a nice healthy raise in arbitration, and then he's eligible for free agency, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily fit in a rebuild, but the fact they're willing to at least consider spending that kind of money to keep him, not Chris Davis break the bank type money, but a significant amount I think is newsworthy. But Michael Ice is going to stop short of saying, oh, we're absolutely going to engage in talks because you just never know. And just like the club never said he's definitely off the table. I mean, they, they were open for the right offer and move him, but it would have had to really be the right offer. Um, I think there is a possibility that they will at least broach that, uh, that subject with his agent, but they are being very careful how they word it publicly because they don't want to come out and say, we're definitely going to do that. And then it doesn't happen. Uh, you know, and, and I think everybody understands and trace certainly does why in some ways it would make sense to do that. And for some ways in a business from a business standpoint, why you have to be open to moving him in this rebuild because it's, they're probably not going to contend next year when he's eligible for free agency. And if his value is as high right now as it's been ever possibly, then, you know, why would you not at least consider before he becomes just a two month rental next year, you have to consider whether you might revisit this in the off season with the right offer. So there's a lot of ways they could directions. They could go with Trey Mancini, which also makes him kind of a fascinating subject. So I think they're being careful in how they, they word this. I think it's very clear from what Michael Ice has said, what I've heard from other people, that there are different directions they can go, but just the fact that an extension is one of them is something to pay attention to. Rock Kubako, MassInSports.com. Rock, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Land, the bird is back and ready to make a special appearance at your next event. Add some Orioles magic to your birthday celebration, wedding, or corporate party by booking the bird today. Proceeds benefit the Orioles Charitable Foundation. Book your bird appearance today at Orioles.com slash bird. All right, what a show. Joe Angel, can't wait for this weekend. Joe going into the Orioles Hall of Fame as the Herb Armstrong Award winner along with J.J. Hardy, Mike Devereaux, former teammate of our colleague and friend Ben McDonald, and of course Mo Gabba. So, Big weekend at the ballpark, and Jeff, I think we'll carry with us, of course, a lot of memories from this 21 season, but the cat in the Bronx may be the one that stays with us the longest. We, we won't forget that anytime soon. Yeah, the cat that came out on the field that, what, five, six different security slash ballpark operations people couldn't find a way to, to corral, just racing across the outfield, finding a, a ledge to jump on, 
in front of the Orioles bullpen going through one of their legs. And eventually they open up a side gate down the third baseline. And that's what got the cat off the field. But that one will, that, that one will, will live in infamy for a, for a really long time. Um, but yeah, one of those, one of those funny moments from the season that I think we're, we're all going to remember because it came in a game too, uh, that as Brandon Hyde said to us uh, after the game, uh, was maybe the most complete game that the Orioles played all season. Yeah, no question about it. And I believe I just saw on Twitter, the cat has been named Mr. Skittles, or that was the cat's name. I'm still curious what a cat like that was doing at Yankee stadium. So I'd love to get to the bottom of that, but just a bizarre moment, but a funny one as well. And the cat became the big hero at Yankee stadium, which I think may have spoken more to how the Yankees played on Monday evening than anything else, but a big thank you to Joe Angel and Rock Kubako. Uh, We're back next week with another edition of Inside the Yard. Big weekend at Camden Yards this weekend, especially on Saturday with Hall of Fame induction ceremony. So come out and join us at the ballpark. But for now, for Jeff Arnold, I'm Brett Hollander. Thanks for taking us and being with us on Inside the Yard. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.